Amen. I love the presence of God that I feel when the people of God get together to worship Him. He said, if you gather together in my name, this is the promise. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm going to be right there in the middle of them. You know, Jesus is here today. Amen. I said, Jesus is in the house. And where He is, anything is possible. Where he is, anything can happen. Amen. He has the power that I don't possess, that no individual in this room possesses, but he has the power to change lives. Amen. He has the power to uplift and encourage, to bind the brokenhearted, to heal the wounded. Amen. He has the ability to make old things pass away and all things become new. That's the great God that we serve. Amen. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our study of first century hymns that are in the New Testament. We're calling the study Hymns About Him. And this is the fourth of six lessons we're going to do. And this is probably the first part of a, another series we'll pick up a little bit later on. I'll probably do six more or so at another point. But this morning... Uh, we're going to be coming from a single verse of Scripture. And remember, last week's hymn was pretty complex. But the, the week before that was one of those that was from a single uh, verse of Scripture. The ni nice thing about these one-verse hymns, and there are not a lot of them, as a matter of fact, the rest of the ones we're going to cover in this set are going to be more complex. But uh, the nice thing about the one-verse hymns is that it's real easy to see the layout of the hymn. It's really easy to see uh, the structure. And, and you're going to read about this passage of Scripture. The commentators and writers say this Scripture, this, this verse in the original language has obvious meter and obvious, uh, the, the obvious signs of the fact that it is a song, that it is more than just the writing, of, but it's written out in the way that a song is written out with rhyme and meter. So scholars uh, insist that this verse consists of hymnic material that is older than the book of Hebrews. Amen. That's the important thing here. This is scripture that was written under the inspiration of God where the author co-opted a song that was being sung in the church. And that song is older than the scripture. That means that it, it's earlier in Pentecost. It's closer to uh, the, the day of Pentecost. And so if you want to get to what the first century church believed, if you want to get down to the very heart of their belief system, you'll find it in these songs. Because this is the theory and it's, it's truth. We sing what we believe and we believe what we sing. And songs in and of themselves are a, uh, of a confessional nature. When we sing, how great is our God. Now, it's possible to come in here on a Sunday morning and just kind of go with the flow and sing the words that you know and not mean it. But when you sing it as worship unto the Lord and you sing, how great is our God, you're making the confession. My God is great. He's bigger than my problems. He's bigger than my circumstances. He's bigger than the situations that are going on in my life. My God is great. So there's a confessional nature to all of these hymns. They declare who Jesus Christ is, which is why we've called it hymns about him. They're all about him. Every one of them is about Jesus. If you want to stand with me, turn. The, the verse of Scripture we're going to look at this morning is Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1. And verse 3, it says this, Who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, 
and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? We love you. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your presence. We're asking, Lord, the next few moments as we open up this passage of Scripture, Lord, would you let it speak into our hearts and into our lives? Let us see you, Lord, in the way that you are desired to be seen in your Scripture. Let us see you in the way that the first century church saw you. Let us see you as you really are. In Jesus' name, would you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. So, so far, all the hymns that we've studied, we've looked at 1 Corinthians 3 and 16, and then we've looked at Colossians 1 and 15 through 20. And it has not been readily apparent in the English translations, but every one of those passages starts with the Greek word who, which is a reference to the incarnation. Uh, the word has been variously translated into the English in a variety of ways. If you remember, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, that word was translated as God because that's the who the, God is refer- who the word is referring to. The who is referring to God. It's referring to the incarnation. So 1 Timothy 3 and 16 translated that word as God. Colossians 1 and 15 translated that word as He. And we started with the, the statement, He is the image of the invisible God. Amen. So that, that word who, though, the reason I bring that up is because that word who is the common way that the New Testament writers introduce these hymns. They're about Jesus, and when they get to talking about Jesus, they'd bring one of these hymns into their text, and they would always lead in, or not always, but almost always lead in with this word. This is how one of the ways that scholars reading the text, looking for these songs, this is the one of the ways they, they denote the fact that this is a systematic pattern that takes place. It begins with who, because it's a, it's a description of Jesus Christ. The songs are always about Jesus, amen? They're always about the incarnation. They always describe him in some way, and they usually begin with this reference, who. Now, it's easy in a, in a short hymn to see the layout. I can even put it on one slide, and you can read it. Brother Dennis is going to put it up there. Last week, I tried to put the whole thing on one slide, and you needed a, a telescope, to be able to read it, amen, a magnifying glass or something. But this is small enough, you can put it on one slide. It's five lines, the first line being who being the brightness of his glory, the second line in the express image of his person, the third line in upholding all things by the word of his power, the fourth line when he had by himself purged our sins, and then the final line sat down at the right hand of majesty on So let's start at the beginning of that, who being the brightness of his glory. There are two key terms here, brightness and glory. The word brightness speaks of radiance, a radiance that streams forth from a source of light. It's a striking picture like the sudden appearance of a glorious dawn at sunrise or the rays of light that pierce every shred of darkness and completely drive it away. He is the brightness of his glory. The English translation in some places, they translate this as the reflection of the glory of God. But that that idea of reflection gives the impression of another body reflecting the light. Like, for instance, I don't know if you've noticed the moon this week. 
They called it a super moon. A super dude, super whatever, it was super moon. Super moon is when the moon gets closer to the earth than it is at normal times. Or then they said this moon was closest to the earth that it's going to be now for uh, 40 or 50 years. A, they, have, they have a precise date. They know how long it's been since the earth was this close to the moon. And so the moon looks larger. So when we get a full moon, uh, you can see better the clarity of the man in the moon. How many saw him up there? And you can make him out up there. I mean, you can almost see him moving around doing his thing. Amen. So I always thought it was Swiss cheese, but it turns out it's not. Amen. But that, that moon is a reflection of the light of the sun. See, the, the reason why reflection doesn't make a good translation here is because the moon doesn't have any light of its own. The moon sim simply reflects the light of the sun. The brilliant brightness of the moon that lights the night sky on that full moon during that super moon, that, that light that you can see in the darkness of night made it. Some deer hunters were complaining they could walk to their stand without a flashlight. You could see your way through the woods. That's how bright that moon was. But the truth is the moon doesn't have any source of light itself. All of its light is the reflected rays of the sun, the same sun that shines in the daytime shines in the night through the reflection off of the moon. And that's the reason why uh, reflection isn't really a good uh, descriptor of what this Greek word means because the moon is completely different from the sun. And in fact, it borrows its brightness from the sun. That's where the moon analogy fails. That's where the English word reflection breaks down and falls short of the intended meaning of the Greek. The word for brightness, the word that's used in the Greek is better described as the rays of light that stream forth from the sun. Here's the important point. You can't separate the sun from its rays. You can't separate the sun from its light. Amen? The light is the very essence of the sun. Light is, in some sense, what our sun is and what our sun does. Amen? The sun provides a light that gives us daytime. So the claim here is not that Jesus was a man who lived and died in Palestine over 2,000 years ago that reflected God's glory. No, you and I reflect God's glory. You and I don't have any glory of our own, and we reflect the glory of God. That's not what Jesus did. Uh, Jesus was not just a reflection of the glory of God. He was the very embodiment of the glory of God. Here's the point. You can't separate Jesus from God. Indeed, he is, as the prophet and the angel declared, God with us. He is God on location. This is the same claim that the hymn last week made in first or in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the seen of the unseen. Amen. Uh, he's the one that is seen that, that makes God visible. God's a spirit. No man's seen God at any time. But in Jesus Christ, we've seen the glory of God. Amen. I was up very early this morning before the sun came up and getting my, my study time in, getting ready for this lesson this morning. And the deer hunters out there will understand what I'm about to say. There is a distinct space of time 
very early in the morning where the sun is not yet visible, but its light is already chasing away the darkness. That time begins about 30 minutes before sunrise. We call it shooting light because you can shoot in that kind of light. As a matter of fact, legal shooting hours start 30 minutes before sunrise. And so you can, you can see to shoot, and that's what the deer hunter thrives really in that moment of the day, early in the morning and late in the evening. That seems to be the time that uh, the deer are on the move at their, their heaviest, where they're moving the most before the sun ever comes up. Now, here's the thing. In that moment, that span of time, just a few minutes before the sun physically makes itself visible. Amen. The, the, the night, the, everything changes. The world changes dramatically. It goes from utter darkness, where you can't walk to the sun, to the stand without a flashlight. Amen. Or the sun, where the moon's covered by the clouds and you can't see anything. And it goes from utter darkness to just a little graying of light, to full-on daylight within the span of 30 minutes, all before the sun breaks the horizon. Now, here's the thing. In that moment, just before the sun becomes physically visible, you don't think of the light around you as anything different than the light of the sun. You can't see the sun yet, but you know the sun's coming up because you can see its light. And the light is the light of the sun. What you're seeing is the rays of light that are streaming forth, are shining forth from the sun that are affecting your world before the sun ever even becomes visible. They are, in essence, the sun's light. Now, that word picture falls short too, but it is a better representation of what the song is claiming than the idea of reflection. Jesus is the essence of God's glory. He makes that which is invisible visible. You can't see God, but you can see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. He is the physical expression of God in a world that has never seen God. Amen. He is the physical expression of the glory. Glory of God. And, and the, that word glory uh, that's used at the end of the first line, that word glory helps convey the meaning of this, this phrase. The, the, in, in the Bible, the word glory corresponds to the visible glory of God that appeared to Israel. It has to do with God's presence. It is attached to deity. Amen. That word glory is literally the visible display of the glory of God or the glory cloud that settled on the temple, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Uh, the claim here is that the very glory of God, the presence of God, the deity of God could be seen in Jesus Christ. Once again, this is a claim that is made elsewhere in Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you get that? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the same language. This is language that was common to the first century church. Uh, the writer of Hebrews doesn't stop and explain what this means because the people he's writing to, they sing this on Sunday morning. Amen. They know what this means. It was clearly a firm conviction among the early Christians that in some way the glory of God was seen in a human life. The glory of God, the very essence of God, God's presence was made manifest in Jesus Christ. To say that the glory of God was shining forth in Jesus is to say that all of the divine attributes, we, we got into that last week, everything that is everything that is everything that makes God God, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Jesus Christ. All that God is, everything that God is was present in Jesus Christ. He was indeed God manifest in the flesh. Amen. The second line says, in the express image of his person. Now, the, this second line uh, repeats the essence of the first line. The word used here is the Greek word for a stamp or a seal. It conveys the idea that a seal, when it's pressed into hot wax, leaves an impression that is the exact likeness of the stamp. The claim here is that Jesus is the very image of the essence of God. He bears the impression of God's being. The Revised Standard Version translates that phrase this way. He bears the very stamp of his nature. Amen. And that word stamp, as, 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 as it's translated there, used in the Greek, became emblematic of more than just the wax seal. It became emblematic of the image. Of. If you, you might say that uh, my son resembles me, and you might say he looks like his daddy, but if you were Greek, you might say he's got the stamp of his daddy. Amen? There's that impression, that likeness, that, 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 that character. And I know that example falls short because my son is not me, but God manifests himself in flesh. And men and women, they saw a human being that was the express image the exact likeness of God in human flesh. Amen? Now, it's also interesting to note that the Greek word for person is used here. And it is a reference to the essence. It is that which underlies something. As a matter of fact, that the Greek word is a, it's a combination of two words. It means stands under. It's what stands under something. It's what supports. It's what, it's what makes something what it is. So the idea here is that Jesus is the precise representation of God's essential being and nature. And here's the important thing to note. This verse has the incarnation in view. The one God of the Old Testament has been manifest in the flesh. Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father. And here, Father and Son are referred to as one person, not two. There's not two persons in this verse. The point of the passage is that no difference can be made between the person of Jesus and the person of God. They are one and the same. That's why Jesus could say to Philip in, in John chapter 14 and verse 9, If I've been so long a time with you, and yet you know me not, he that hath seen me 
hath seen the Father. Amen? There is no more powerful expression of the deity of Jesus Christ than to say that he is the express image of the very person of God. He's not a separate person. He's not a second person. He is the express image of the very person of God. Can I get an amen? The third line says, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Once again, this hymn makes the same claim that the hymn that we did last week out of Colossians made. The Colossians, I believe it was verse 17, said that all things consist in him. Remember that? He created it. And all of it has its consistency in him. He holds everything that is together. This verse makes the same claim. He upholds all things by the, by the word of his power. That means that the oceans are held into their beds. The, the rivers run down into the sea. The heavenly bodies are held in their orbits. All of that is accomplished by the word of the power of Jesus Christ. Amen? The, the word of God is used by John as the very representation of Jesus. Remember John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. That word we know from verse 14 was made flesh and dwelt among us. So that word is Jesus Christ. But John 1 and 3 says, And all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. So this hymn understands that claim. The same claim that Colossians made that Jesus created all things and then it takes it a step further. In the same way that the word created, the word now sustains. Now the amazing ability of, uh, of the universe around us that, that is that it is stable. It doesn't change. I can't tell you when it is, but you can pick up, you can tell, go to Google right now and you can find out to the minute, to the second, when is the next time that the moon will be as close to the earth as it was at, I believe the peak of it was 6.30 on Tuesday morning. You can go and, why can you go and figure that out? Because the universe moves with a precision. Amen. It moves in an order. It's not haphazard. It's not random. We set our clocks by it. We order our calendars after it. Amen. Everything, the, 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 the stability of that universe is the witness to the power of the Word of God. The Greek word here is the Greek word for upholding. It has a deeper meaning than just sustaining or supporting. It conveys the idea of carrying alone or bearing something towards a goal. It has movement as an inherent part of its meaning. In other words, the, the Greek implies that God didn't just create the universe, set it in motion, and then leave it to its own devices. That's not what it says. He's not just creator. He is sustainer, too. Amen. He didn't just make the world and leave the world to work things out on its own, to do what the world does and to, and to fulfill its purpose. He set 
things in motion by his creative word and he continues to hold them in motion, moving them towards his desired end by the power of that same creative word. I want you to understand, God has a plan. Uh, He has a purpose. Uh, Amen. Governments march uh, to the drum of his destiny and his timing. Uh, Nations move and kingdoms rise and fall. Amen. According to the purpose and the plan of God. He is active in this world, sustaining it, keeping it moving towards that desired conclusion that's going to come in the book of Revelation when the Lamb becomes the light, uh, when there's a new heavens uh, and a new earth. uh, Old things pass away eternally and all things are made brand new. The world's moving to the cadence of God's plan, stepping in rhythm towards that moment. The universe was created by the Word of God, and now we see that it is sustained by His Word. Amen? This is another claim to deity. Once again, Jesus is equated to God, not as a subordinate but as the very expression of the sustaining power of God. The Greek word here for power, and you may have heard this said before, is the word dynamis, which is the root from which we get the word dynamite. And that word can be translated in a large variety of ways. But in this instance, dynamite is pretty a pretty fair representation of what the word means. It is the raw power of God. It's the raw ability of God. That's the power. The power that is expressed in his word. That's what was on location in the incarnation. That power is the reason why he could speak to the sick and they were healed. Why the dead lived again. Why the lame leaped for joy. It was that power that made blind eyes to see and deaf ears to hear. It was the very creative power of God. It was on location in Jesus Christ. And that's what the church of the first century understood about Jesus. They understood that the very power of God, the dunamis or dynamis or dynamite of God, that power of God was on location in Jesus Christ. Amen? The next line says, When he had by himself purged our sins. This is the poetic turn of the song. This is where the defining contrast is introduced. All poetry and songs have within them that antithesis element, antithetical element is where I was going, that that element of opposition, that contrast that happens. And after telling us that Jesus is the mighty God who sustains the universe by his power, the songwriter now turns to the real reason for the incarnation. The incarnation is not as much about sustaining the universe as it is about redeeming fallen humanity. This is the contrast. Creation rests on his power, but redemption rests on his weakness. Creation rests on his authority, but redemption rests on his Humility. He made himself a little lower than the angels. 
that he could suffer death for every man. God humbled himself. It's in his powers, the raw display of the authority of God that speaks the word and worlds come into existence. But he doesn't accomplish redemption by the power of his word. He accomplishes redemption through the shed blood of a worthy sacrifice. It's his humility. It's his weakness. This is a claim that centers on the cross, which is a very a very upfront reality for the first century church. These are people who not just hearing about the cross, not just have heard it written about, not have heard it singing, but they saw it. They were there. Amen. Some of them were present when Jesus Christ hung on that cross. They saw the humility. They saw the, 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 the brokenness. They saw the weakness there. They saw uh, all that that transpired, unfolded there. And, and so they, they recognized that it was the power of God that created the world but it was the weakness of God that redeemed us from our sins so we rush from the image of the grandeur of God who sustains the worlds by the power of his word to the savior who submitted himself to the agony of the cross who humbled himself the, the, the word that the scholars like to use is condescended we think of condescension as a bad thing don't condescend to me. That means you take the high place and, and you, you act like you're coming down to the low place where I am. But that's exactly what God did. He left the heights of his glory and he descended to the low place where we were. God condescended to become like a man. Amen. He made himself a body. And there he died on an old rugged cross. Amen. The reason for the incarnation is that God came to redeem the lost. It's about the agony of the cross. It's about the blood that was shed there. All of these wonderful truths about who he is, the, the brightness of the glory of God, the express image of the person of God, the one that upholds all things by the word of his power, all of that is just another way of getting to this Point, and this point has to do with God on a cross. This point has to do with redemption, with the wonder of what happened that day at Calvary. He had by himself purged our sins. The word used here for purging was most often used for purification or the ritual washing away of uncleanness that took place under Old Testament law. One scholar described it this way. He said, purification for sins was an age-long religious quest. Wherever there was any sense of sin on the part of humanity, there was generally always a strong desire to be cleansed from it. And so man created religious systems. Man tried various different things and ways to obtain such purification. And the problem was that all of those systems had as their basis the power of a man. They relied on the, the strength of will or the goodness of a man or what a man could accomplish in and of himself. Amen. None of that can ever purchase redemption from sin. None of that can ever purge away sin. Notorious among those kind of systems were the Pharisees of Jesus' day who generally made good works and self-effort the measure of religious devotion. In the culture of the first century, the idea that sins could be purified 
without great human effort was a foreign concept. Certainly the idea that Jesus could purify sins was regarded as incredible. Yet that's the claim the song makes. Jesus Christ by himself. He didn't need any help with me. He didn't need me to do anything. Jesus Christ by himself purged our sins. Not by anything that we did, but by his own power. Through his manifest weakness, he redeemed us from sin. What we could not do for ourselves. What centuries of men and women weren't unable to do for themselves. Jesus, by himself, accomplished the purification of our lives. He purged us from sin. The song places that action in the past tense. It doesn't say he will purge us. It says he already has. He, by himself, purged us. The songwriter is looking back to the cross, and he's hearing the words of Jesus. It is finished. The sin issue is settled. A way has been made. Redemption has been purchased. Here's the key. There's only one solution for sin, and it's found at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross was God's final answer to the sin problem. It was God's means of demolishing the barrier that stood between God and humanity. That work is finished. Redemption is complete. However, in order to bring that into your life, in order to bring your life under the umbrella of that redemptive power, you have to appropriate that redemption into your life through faith. Amen? Faith is what it takes. Faith believes in the redemption of Jesus Christ. It's faith that is obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a faith that repents. It's a faith that is baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It is a faith that receives a baptism of the Holy Ghost just like the scripture says. Jesus' sacrifice is final once for all. It's finished. It's done. The whole sins for the whole world have have been purged and cleansed, but we know that not everybody is going to experience that salvation. Amen. It is to whosoever will, and that invitation is broad. There's not anybody who's born excluded from that promise. Anybody can. Whosoever will can come to the cross of Jesus and find salvation from sins. He has purged our sins, but we have to go and we have to come to the cross and we have to, in faith, obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how that takes place in our lives. Amen? The final line of the song, and I'm, I'm coming to a close. He says, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So for the song's final claim about Jesus, when redemption was finished, he sat down on the right hand of majesty on high. First of all, this expresses the finality of the act of redemption. It's what we were just talking about. The sacrifice was finished. And when the sacrifice was finished, when the offering was complete, it was over. And that is signified by the words he sat down. Jesus sat 
down. That's figurative language, which stands in contrast to the high priest of the Old Testament, who, according to tradition, never sat down in the tabernacle. Why? Because his work was never finished. And to sit down was to signify that the work was finished. And so when the writer of the song says that he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, he's by, by using that sitting down language, he's conveying completion. The work of Jesus Christ is finished. He has done what the Old Testament high priest could never do. He's reached the place where what he's doing is done, and he can sit down. Amen? Now then that brings up the question, where did he sit down? The scripture says it sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. I'm going to work this backwards. Let's start with the phrase majesty on high. That phrase is a particularly respectful way of speaking about God. The Hebrews, and remember this is the letter to the Hebrews. The Hebrews or or devout Jews were extremely respective of the name of God. As a matter of fact, by the time that Jesus came... They wouldn't write it, and they wouldn't say it. And it had been so long since they had written it or said it that nobody remembered it. Think about that for a minute. Somewhere during the the exile, somewhere during the years of captivity, somebody came up with this idea that it was disrespectful to write the name of God and disrespectful to say it. It's not a biblical concept. It was a concept that got introduced into the thinking of the Hebrew mind. And so they quit writing it and they quit saying it. And they got so far removed from that hundreds of years later, nobody even remembered it. As a matter of fact, to this day, we know the consonants. We don't know the vowels. And we don't know the proper translation or pronunciation of the Hebrew word. They call it the Tetragrammaton. It's four consonants. uh, Y-H-W-H. Yahweh is the way that English usually translates it. Uh, It's the same word that some translate as Jehovah. It's that name of God. So that name of God was lost. Hebrews, the reason it was lost is because they had such a respect for God, such a respect for the name of God. So what they would do, and you'll see this in the book of Matthew a lot. Matthew, and being a devout Jew, Uh, a very strong Hebrew influence. And then here in the book of Hebrews, they don't speak of God in the first person. They speak of God in what what scholars call a circumlocution. They, They go around God and they speak of God in these terms that describe him. So this is a way of not writing God by saying hand, the right hand of majesty on high. The majesty on high is God. Amen. The majesty on high is the very ancient of days, the one who was and is and forever will be. So this is a respectful way of saying that without saying God. And so he says he sat down at the right hand. We're going to use God, at the right hand of God. So let's talk about what we know. First of all, we know that God's a spirit, right? And we know that spirits don't have a physical body which is why no man has seen God at any time. However, Jesus has revealed God. In the incarnation, God made himself a body. 
So other than Jesus Christ, other than the body that was created for the incarnation, God doesn't have a right hand. As a matter of fact, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. It is impossible to stand on his right side. Because wherever you are, you're in the very center of where he is. Because he's everywhere all the time. So this is not a statement of position. This is not a statement that the person of Jesus and the person of God are, are, are standing in heaven one to the right of the other. No. The verse has already described the person of God as being the person of Jesus. There's only one person in the verse. And, and so to say that Jesus stands at the right hand of God is to say that he occupies the position of supreme exaltation. The right hand was the way that the Bible writers talked about power and authority. It was the way that they described uh, the power and authority of God. It was by the right hand. Most people are right-handed. If you're left-handed, I'm going to apologize to you right in advance for saying this, but most people are right-handed. And your right hand, <laughs> Sean's laughing. <laughs> for, for Sean, it's his left hand. But your right hand is stronger than your left hand. Amen? That was the normative way of talking about it. And so when you talked about the strength of a man, you talked about his right hand. You know, you mess with me and you're going to get the right fist. Amen? You're going to get the right hand. You're going to get that, that. That's the position of strength. That's the position of power. And so when it says that Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, it's not the visible representation of one person sitting beside another person, but it's saying that Jesus ascended uh, into the heavens and assumed that position of supreme power and authority. Amen. Paul says it the same thing in a different way by saying that Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 10 has ascended far above all heavens that he might feel all things. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul said, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. Jesus, he stands in that supreme place of power and authority. Amen? This line echoes the previous line. The work of Calvary is finished. Jesus has sat down. Nothing else remains to be done for the redemption of sins. Redemption is complete. All that remains is for the lost to hear. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and respond to that in faith. Would you stand with me, Brother Larry? Why don't you get Brother Ryan if he's available? Amen. We are then, our position in all of this is we are the ambassadors of the cross. You see, here's the thing. The whole world has a chance at redemption. Jesus Christ died for every man, woman, and child who ever lived. There is nobody who is excluded from that promise. But it doesn't become a reality until they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and respond in faith. It becomes your job and my job 
as the ambassadors of the cross to go to the world and tell them who Jesus is. That's the point of the song. That's the purpose of the song. The song is a declaration of faith. It's a declaration of the identity of Jesus Christ. I'm going to, as Brother Ryan comes and gets a, a song ready, I, I remember a story, and I don't have it in my notes, so I may louse it up a little bit, but I remember a story in the Old Testament about a time when Jerusalem was under siege. And there was a long, drawn-out period of time where nothing was allowed in and out of the city. And things got desperate. There was no food. There was, there was, no, there was no resources. There was no way to sustain a family. People were, were doing really crazy things. They were buying doves dung to eat. They were, they were uh, at one, one point, I, I believe there's some mention even of cannibalism and all that. There was a lot going on. But at the same time that all of that city was reduced to a state of helplessness and hopelessness and everything was falling apart, at the same time, the Bible said there were these four lepers who lived outside the city. Why do they live outside? They said, well, they're not allowed in the city because they're lepers. And they sat outside that city, and they came to the conclusion, Brother Donnie, if we sit here, we're going to die of starvation. And if we go to the Syrian camp, the army that has surrounded the city, they're going to kill us. We're going to die either way. Perhaps the Syrians will have mercy and feed us before they kill us. So let's go to the Syrian camp. And the Bible said those four lepers got up and they hobbled and, 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 and done what it needed to, to get there. And you, I say hobbled because if you know what leprosy is, it eats away parts of the body. And I'm sure there were, there were some that the toes were missing, feet were missing, not a hands or whatever. And they had to support each other and help each other. These are absolute helpless and decrepit individuals who they start walking towards a Syrian camp. You remember the story now, don't you? The Bible says that the glory of God moved in such a way that it amplified the sound of those four lepers stumbling towards that enemy camp and made it sound like a great cavalry, mighty army was coming bearing down. And the Bible said the Syrians turned in fear and ran for their lives. When those four lepers walked into that Syrian camp, they found it deserted and empty. And there was food. There was splendor. There were tables set and prepared. There was, there was, a, there was a rich feast. And they, uh, Brother Donnie, they'd done like any starving person would do. They threw themselves right in the middle of it. I mean, they were up to their elbows in, in figs and honey and whatever all was there. They were eating just for everything they could. And the Bible says somewhere along the way, one of them stopped and remembered there's a starving city. They're, they're eating dove's dung over there. And here we sit with all of this plenty. We have to go tell the city. we got to go tell the people. I can't help but believe this morning that's exactly where you and I are. We, we stand in the presence of God. We stand in the presence of majesty. We, we feast at His table. Amen. We've eaten of His goodness. But there's a lost world who doesn't know the power of redemption. There's a lost world that hasn't experienced the goodness of God. There's a lost world that, that is desperate, that is dying, that is hopeless. Who are we to sit in this house 
and partake of the goodness of God's blessings and not go tell somebody, listen, he has by himself purged our sins. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. It is finished. Salvation is available. But you and I have to tell somebody. Amen. I want to ask you if you find a place of prayer for a few moments. Brother Ryan's going to sing a worship song. But I'm asking you to turn your heart towards heaven. And make this your prayer this morning. Lord, would you help me be an evangelist? Would you give me that same passion that those lepers had that day, Lord, that they left the Syrian camp and went running back to the city? Would you help me to remember, God, that the many good things and blessings that you've given me, they're not just for me to consume, God. They're for me to go and take to the world and say, Come, I know where there's food. I know where there's rest. I know where there's refreshing. Come, I know where there's peace that passes understanding. Come, I know where there's joy unspeakable. Come, I know where there's meaning to life. Come, let me show you. That place where the blood flows down an old rugged cross, where redemption was made, where a price was paid. Would you pray right now and ask the Lord, Lord, make me an evangelist. Help me reach my world with the gospel of Jesus Christ.